You're listening to The Lodestar, the supply chain and logistics industry's leading source of insight. This podcast was created and produced by MK and Associates and your host, Mike King. Yes, we're back and we're brimful of enthusiasm for what is already shaping up as a year of daunting challenges for freight and shipping. We're expecting huge profits if you're in the carrier business, whether that's air, rail, truck, or container line. But if you're a buyer, managing your procurement has never been more important, and planning your inventory requirements more critical. The lead-in to all important Chinese New Year factory closures at the start of February will be our focus today. Are we seeing the traditional mini-peak, or is there a looming multimodal crunch on the horizon? And what comes afterwards? All will be revealed as we hear the latest from China and examine what's happening in airframe market and where contract and spot rates are up to on the east-west trade lanes. Joining me on this odyssey is Flexport Air Cargo Guru Neil Jones-Shaw, Project 44's Adam Compain, PC Group's Jason Haith and Seco Logistics' Akhil Naya. Schedule disruptions, as well as the number of blank sailings, is severely impacting the space available on ships. So there is a huge spike in demand, but there is a massive constraint on supply at this point in time. Hello, everybody. I'm Mike King. Welcome to the Lodestar podcast. Hello, welcome back. Happy New Year. And I'm a bit early on this, but Kunki Fat Choi, which for those who don't know, or those who can't understand my accent or dreadful pronunciation, is how you wish happiness and prosperity to friends over Chinese New Year. And Chinese New Year is going to be a theme of this podcast as we hear from those at the forwarding coalface and turn our attention to the world's major freight lanes. And who better to join me on this journey than someone who examines shipping markets in such detail that I suspect he's part man, part analyst. It's Peter Sand, formerly of BIMCO and newly installed as Chief Shipping Analyst at Zenitor. Hello, Peter. Hi, Mike. What a great way of introducing this. And uh, to, uh, to you too. Peter, the, the last time you joined me on the Lodestar, uh, your dog Livy was a surprise visitor. And, and by all reports back to me, he added a lot of depth and nuance to our conversation. Will he be enlightening us on shipping rates today or will our listeners have to put up with just me and you? I'm sorry to say that the one thing I, I brought to the studio today is is one of his biscuits. But he told me many good stories when when we walked through the woods this morning. So uh, so trust me on this one. I have it from uh, from his very mouth in the morning. So I'm just eager to get going and sharing all Louis' insights. I'm glad Louis fully briefed you. So first up, Peter, let's have a look at those rates so we can see where markets are heading before we hear what's happening on the ground and in the skies in China. We have Chinese New Year holidays at the Beijing Olympics at the start of February. Normally ahead of Chinese year, we would see a mini peak in spot ocean freight rates. So just briefly, what is happening to those spot rates as we get close to the start of those holidays? Shippers are absolutely worrying about the impact and and potential disruption to an already stressed out supply chain and, and a stressed out market. Uh, so, uh, so what they have done very much so, if we focus on northeast to Europe, is basically to front load those cargoes. So, so that basically resulted already in an in an early uh, December hike on, on those uh, spot rates, uh, and, and early January we took another leap upwards. So we're actually now at fifteen thousand dollars for the forest to Europe, and then of course. If you are to pay priority shipments on top of that, you're looking at another one to three Ks. So very much so, uh, front loading of cargo, of course, anticipating disruptions ahead. If we go for the Trans-Pacific, we also saw a lift in early Jan. We did not see the same pattern for, for, for December already, but we're certainly also seeing a, a lift from 8,500-ish to early $9,000 already here also priority shipment fees one for one point five thousand Ks to to six thousand Ks on priority shipments. Then of course also on the US East Coast. And I think that gives a knock on from the lock jams that we have seen on the US West Coast because what we're seeing here on the US East, uh, East Coast is definitely 
a jump up in freight rates. The normal delta between the, the two coasts are approximately $1,000, or something like that. But we see that uh, twice the size right now. We have seen that early lift from uh, from U.S. East Coast go all the way, well, just shy of $12,000 with priority shipment fees around t- up to $10,000 also. So there's plenty of action going on and plenty of nervousness in the market, I sense, to get those cargoes out of China before it's too late. We're going to return later in this podcast to that playoff between the West Coast and East Coast and the pros and cons of shipping into either with those poor queues in the West Coast. And there's quite a lot going on in the next few months on the Trans-Pacific, including some union negotiations, but we'll return there later. For now, let's look at China. I spoke in mid-January to Hong Kong-based Akhil Naya, who is VP for Global Carrier Management and Ocean Strategy at Seco Logistics. I asked him how COVID outbreaks and lockdowns in China had been affecting port and trucking operations and what sort of impact this was having on getting cargo onto ships in a timely manner. Yeah, it's, it's been a challenging time. There have been multiple COVID outbreaks in China, particularly focused on, you know, as of most recently, Ningbo, as well as Tianjin as well. A lot of the current main bottlenecks that we're seeing at the origin are limited to not so much the vessel delays or the port operations, because unlike earlier outbreaks where the Chinese government actually shut down the terminals at the ports, this time, most of the restrictions are um, being targeted towards the trucking capacity. And when I say that, it is more about the drivers and the testing of these drivers. As you know, China has a very strict zero COVID policy. And within a particular city or a terminal, even within districts, there are different zones. And if a particular case is found in one part of the city, they lock that area down. So how this impacts drivers and trucking capacity is that if a driver is coming from one area to another, he needs to go through multiple levels of testing. And in some cases, if from an infected area to a non-infected area, he also has to then isolate. So effectively, this is removing about close to 50% of capacity in some cases that we've seen last week in Ningbo. So that's the major driver for the delays, and it's definitely impacting the throughput and the total volume that can be pulled in and out of these terminals. And Akhil, is this just at ports or is this is this something that is affecting the hinterland operations within China? Actually, Mike, this is happening in multiple hotspots across the country as of now. There has been a lot of news about the lockdown, particularly in Xi'an, which is a hinterland area, which impacts cargo coming in throughout to the eastern China seaboard. While the major terminal of Shanghai is not yet impacted, we have seen sporadic outbursts in various areas of South China. So I am expecting to see impact or slowdown of the entire supply chain through South China as well at this point. And I, and I know also there was a, a quarantine of 200 pilots on the Yaxi River at the turn of the year as well, which was affecting some of those barge operations. Now we're approaching Chinese New Year in early February when factories in China traditionally close for at least a week and are often short-staffed for much longer. In the middle of a pandemic, things have obviously been slightly different. Presumably, these more recent outbreaks are already slowing output by manufacturers and, and affecting their ability to, to get cargo out of the factories. Yeah, absolutely, Mike. I mean, traditionally, the week running up to Chinese New Year would have been the biggest peak week where everyone would have been pumping cargo out of factories and rushing to get onto boats. While that seasonality still continues in terms of people rushing to get orders out, there are a myriad of factors impacting these things right now. One is, of course, yes, the lockdowns like we talked about. And the second part is about the traditional seasonality of this holiday. The Chinese New Year is one of the world's largest migrations of people where workers actually leave from the eastern seaboard or from the southern port areas back to their hometowns in the hinterland. And this is exactly what led to the huge amount of COVID spread back in 2020. So obviously the authorities are not very keen on allowing that to happen this time around. So while there is no official policy stopping travel, I'm sure that there are messages to large manufacturers and exporters to restrict or to avoid and discourage a huge migration of staff moving from especially these COVID impacted areas back home. So you have that. And this might lead to not only just labor shortages initially, but also an extended return time for these workers who would have normally been back by about 8th of February, 8th to 15th would have been the normal time when workers return to factories. Currently, we're also seeing that there's potentially 
domestic quarantine requirements if they do go home before they come back to the production facility or the manufacturing facility. They might have to undergo isolation. So if you're looking at this, the actual impact is that we might see a longer period of Chinese New Year lull in the output through February. So presumably, Akhil, the race is on now to get cargo out of China as fast as possible before all these closures. Absolutely, Mike. Currently, there has been a huge spike in the demand for both ocean and air capacity. And we all know the various challenges impacting the supply chain in other parts of the world. But the, the schedule disruptions, as well as the number of blank sailings that have um, emerged, whether planned or unplanned, is severely impacting the space available on ships. So there is a huge spike in demand, but there is a massive constraint on supply at this point in time. I mean, we're looking at something like 44 blank sailings, which have emerged between week two and five of this year, based on the latest data that came out. Based on what you were saying, Akhil, we're, we're looking at an extended period when output in China might decline significantly as workers are, are stranded in various places and can't get back. Traditionally, at Chinese New Year, it's a window when logistics providers, shipping lines can reorganize their networks, get equipment back in the right places, get vessels back on schedule. Sounds like we might have a chance to do that to a degree, but when we return after Chinese New Year and output picks up, there's going to be a huge backlog of orders people are waiting to get out. That seems to be the consensus right now, Mike, that this prolonged lull, while it may be good for the carriers in some cases to reorganize and get their schedules back on performa, I think on the return and the reproduction, there is going to be a huge crunch once more for space, maybe early March. And this is not going to be part of any normal seasonality trend for this part of the year or at any trade. So you're not expecting a, a Q2 seasonal lull then? I think all seasonality, in my view, has gone out the window since 2020. So um, I, I would say it's up for anybody to guess, but my crystal ball basically says that, yeah, we're going to be in a sustained peak for pretty much the rest of this year, at least until Q3. Akhil Nair, thank you very much for joining me on the Lodestar podcast. Thank you, Mike. Pleasure. Peter, how are you expecting shipping lines to make use of any factory closures? And it seems like there might be quite a lot already in terms of how they might try to reorganize sailing schedules over Chinese New Year. Could we see some improvement in reliability? I think everybody would love to see higher scheduled reliability. And I, and I guess you, you will only see that on specific and selected trades and not necessarily the big long hauls, high volumes because of the impact is literally difficult to see. It's such a, say, strained market right now. So, so even though carriers are constantly trying to optimize their networks, you will only see somewhat of a limited impact on reliability, even though this closure around Chinese New Year perhaps extended into uh, to, to the Beijing Olympics. It, it gives only very little breathing room for, for shipping lines. So, so you should not expect a massive change on the back of this. Uh, but if you are to believe at least some of the, uh, the news coming from the carriers at the time being is that, that they are basically not cutting capacity at large uh, over the Chinese New Year. So they are prepared if cargo is ready to be shipped out. But I guess that is the essential question here. Are cargo capable of being moved to the ports and then shipped? Question mark. If we assume that that cargo is, and I agree, it's a huge assumption. If we agree that cargo is available in that post-Chinese New Year period and into Q2, are you still expecting a huge imbalance in supply and demand out of Asia for shipping? Uh, without doubt, without doubt. And this is playing in the hands of the carrier profits again, of course. The alternatives are simply not there for the shippers that need uh, their, their goods to be shipped. I mean, there's hardly any international aviation supporting the uh, cargo market. So that's not an option. It, it's only an option to some extent to put it on, on rails or truck it from China to Europe. But there is no alternative to, to the big volumes and especially also when you cross the Pacific. So without doubt, uh, it seems as if we are in for an extended strain period, potentially with, say, more cargo being moved and in somewhat off season, but of course, all of that will support uh, freight rates, both on the spot, but also on uh, the negotiation that we are going to see continue on uh, any of the, the long hauls. I think this would probably be a, a good place 
to bring in Flexport, Executive Vice President and Global Head of Air Freight, Neil Jones-Shaw. Hello, Neil. Hey, Mike. How are you? It's great to be with you this morning. I'm good. I'm good. Uh, Omicron Central here in London, but we're all doing okay, I think. Neil, what has been the situation at Chinese and Asian airports these past few weeks in terms of securing capacity and getting cargo to the right place, given all the various lockdowns, the working restrictions, the outbreaks of COVID that have affected airport workers and, and pilots? It's a great question and extremely relevant for what we're dealing with now as we've started the new year. First and foremost, thanks for having me on. Um, always a pleasure to chat with you. I think here in the U.S., maybe we can challenge you for Omicron Central. Maybe we'll see who, who wins that race. But uh, getting on with your question, the, the year really started out with a bang. And speaking of Omicron, right, there's a, there's a lot of fear around how infectious this strain is. And clearly, there is still a zero COVID strategy in much of Asia, particularly in China and in Hong Kong, which has aligned very closely with the mainland. And as a result of this, and as a result of how rapidly this uh, virus was spreading, they went into a more severe lockdown situation. Most specifically, the quarantine measures were changed for aircrew. It went from three days to seven days in Hong Kong, which has sort of an exponential impact on, on Cathay and the airline's ability to schedule its flight crews, right? And so as a result, you know, we started off the year by Cathay effectively suspending their schedule for the first six days of the year, and then subsequently announced that as a result of these new rules, they would effectively not be able to fly long haul cargo operations until the end of March. So we lost 80% of Trans-Pacific eastbound capacity, 34 flights to seven. We lost 100% of Far East westbound capacity, 15 flights to zero, I believe. But Cathay's not the only carrier here that's, you know, that's facing a wave of Omicron and COVID-related staffing issues. Every airline has faced uh, significant issues with crews and ground staff being out or exposed uh, to the virus. And, and as a result, we're just having to manage on a day-to-day -day basis right now. Unfortunately or fortunately, we have become used to a lot of curveballs being thrown our way. We have dealt with so much over the past almost two years now that uh, I think particularly our teams at Flexport are very adept at, at maneuvering around this. And uh, just to make clear to our listeners, Neil, we're talking in mid-January and we've got Chinese New Year coming up first week of February. On the air freight side, is it a case pretty much for a lot of shippers who, who urgently need parts or product? Is it a case of now or never for them? Well, you know, it's a, it's a great question. And I think that you are reaching that point. I don't think you're there yet. I think the market can still absorb a decent amount of demand coming through the door, but this is basically your last week, right? To make the right accommodations in order to get your product in pre CNY. But we're also hearing a lot regarding CNY. You know, the Chinese government is discouraging workers from traveling. Uh, extensively this holiday, that a lot of flights have been banned in and out of China over this holiday period as a result of the Omicron surge. We have the Olympics coming up. They want people traveling around as much during this time period as well. So we are anticipating that a decent number of factories will be producing during this time period as workers sort of stay in their work locations. And so from a Flexport perspective, we're not changing a thing with our network, with our dedicated capacity, we're going to fly right through CNY, which we did last year, but is, as you know, historically quite a unique situation, right? You usually take a break for a couple of weeks, but not this year. We're going we're gonna to keep moving. Uh, it was good hearing from Neil Jones-Shaw there. Now, one of the interesting conundrums of the air cargo market in mid-January was that average rates, according to the TAC index, were in fact coming off. Both Hong Kong and Shanghai trace to Europe and the US or average rates see steep declines and early indications suggest that this might be because, as we were discussing earlier, Peter, factory and airport capacity is a lot lower than expected, possibly because that cargo can't reach the airport due to China's strict COVID policies. So there is this possibility that some of these lockdowns are a lot more severe than is being made public. Now, this is something the Lodestar will continue to investigate, and I'll be looking at 
Those TAC index freight rate declines in more detail in the next Lodestar podcast due out in the first week of February. But Peter, just turning to importers, if we may, throughout the last year or more, one of the key influences on global freight capacity has been US consumer behavior, which is something we've covered in multiple stories over the past year or more. In short, consumption has been voracious, and this has sucked both freighters and ships into those US trades and away from elsewhere as carriers seek higher profits. Can you explain what impact this has had on shipping markets? It's the one question that we seek to unravel as we progress, because in in essence, uh, what you basically just highlighted here is the essentials, at least for what has happened on the oceans. Because in real terms, you should perhaps look closer into uh, to, to the trucking uh, industry in, in the U.S., uh, the congested railroads also in the U.S. because of the fact that the inability of the, uh, say, massively congested ports to move cargo in and out have had this knock-on effect that global liners have completely rescheduled their networks, putting much more capacity into the Trans-Pacific, taking that away from, uh, for instance, Asia-African trade, but also... Of course, if we go back two years, we had like two and a half million TEUs basically sitting idle. And that capacity have, of course, been fed into where it could make the most of it, including forest to Europe, even though demand has not been there particularly high. But getting back, and of course, the essentials of the unraveling of this event is that when will we see U.S. consumer behavior cool off? To some extent, we have seen a little bit of it, but it seems as if there's still super strong demand coming from the the American consumers. As you say, Peter, vessels have been sucked into the Trans-Pacific trade from around the world. And we'll hear in the next podcast what impact this has had in some of those other markets, especially in the Middle East. Peter, before we hear your take on the Trans-Pacific spot and contract rates and those ongoing negotiations, I think this is a good point to bring in two guys I think can shed some light on that Trans-Pacific trade right now. Let me welcome Adam Compain, who's the Senior Vice President for Product Marketing and Supply Chain Insights at Freight Visibility Company Project 44, and Jason Haith, Manager at Trans-Pacific Forwarding Specialist OEC Group, who also very kindly lent his magnificent voice, which you heard at the start of this Lodestar podcast. Welcome, guys. Thanks, Mike. Very good to be here. Hello, Mike. Thanks for having me. Adam, uh, one of the Lodestar's recent stories examined a new study by Project 44 into the increased transit times we're seeing on key container trades. What sort of jumps or increases in those transit times did you guys record? We've seen a lot of challenges uh, as as has everyone at this point. You know, for example, our Project 44 data has revealed about a 50% increase year over year in delays coming from places like China to the U.S. West Coast, which is a a vast majority of the trade that the United States is doing. That means that a typical journey that was, call it 18 days or so, has been delayed to about over a month, 30 days, which is quite significant if you think about what it takes these large retailers and manufacturers to get product on their shelves for everyday consumers. Jason, how have you been coping with all this on the Trans-Pacific trade lane? So a lot of the work that I do is preemptive. Uh, So these are issues I've been working with clients on since maybe November of this year. And a lot of that has to do with planning and timing. One of the biggest issues we've faced uh, with these delays at the ports and delays in departure has to do with importers trying to figure out just exactly how long it's going to take for them to get their product. Those models have been upended given the problems that we've seen. So a lot of this is consultation, really looking at average transit times to try and put clients in a mind space where their expectations are more aligned with reality than they may have been in the past. How do you communicate that to your clients that they need to plan ahead to avoid those higher costs that getting involved with the spot market would entail, but also that they need to plan their inventory supplies and to manage this at these higher increased transit times by, by ocean and also by air to a degree? Sure. Every two weeks, so bi-monthly, I'm providing the clientele I work with, with market update information. This is information that shows what's going on at U.S. ports, information that includes port delays, 
average port delays, average transit times to move product inland given the situations, and planning ahead. I've advised clients that booking cargo 30 days in advance, while previously out of the question, maybe a few years ago, um, is absolutely par for the course right now. Booking cargo early and trying to make decisions about just how long it's going to take that cargo to arrive so that they can plan things exactly like inventory has been a really huge part of my day and my job for the past 12 months. We've got listeners uh, to the Lodestar podcast from around the world. Can you just briefly give us a, a quick window into what the situation is like once you get cargo to the US? How are you coping with port delays, uh, which have spread far beyond LA Long Beach that people might have heard of? You're right. It's an absolutely incredibly difficult problem to deal with. Uh, and a lot of that has to do with uncertainty. Part of the issue the United States faces uh, in some ports in the US, in particular the Southwest, LA, Long Beach, and San Pedro, has to do with the way the system is set up. You know, the terminal operators, they're not the trucking companies. That's a separate group of people. Back in April in the United States, one of the interesting things that we saw were steamship lines backing away from what we would call IPI or MLB cargo. These are shipments into the Midwest of the country, places like Chicago, Dallas, Memphis, Kansas City, Nashville, Atlanta. Steamship lines started rejecting that inland cargo. The rail situation in the United States was incredibly difficult, and it was taking those containers too long to be returned to the port. They effectively got lost uh, as they were moving inland on the rail. So a lot of that cargo was rerouted to simply the port. It's as far as steamship lines would pull it. So that increased volume in particular to the West Coast and, and the LA Long Beach port complex they've basically been inundated with way more shipments than they originally would have handled. And it's put huge stress on local truckers and chassis depots and local warehouses to process that cargo. Again, I think it all comes back to timing. So we're working with clients weeks or sometimes a month prior to cargo departure. We're reaching out to trucking companies, in some instances, weeks in advance to try and make sure there's power available, a chassis arranged, a warehouse set, so that everybody has a really good idea of exactly what we're going to do once this cargo becomes available. Now, the problem that we've seen is sometimes that availability changes. The port may advise that a cargo, a particular container is available. And when the trucking company shows up, well, miraculously, that container isn't. So communication to the client has become really paramount to make sure that they understand when they're going to receive this cargo because they have staffing issues to consider as well. So it, it's been, it's been really difficult, but communication is key. I know some of those inland uh, rail and trucking rates have been hitting uh, near record levels, but sometimes it's just a case of finding availability as well as it. It is, it's mostly power in, in the United States, COVID has, especially this Omicron variant. COVID has really become a big issue. A lot of trucking companies, you know, once, they're, once their drivers are test positive, they've got a quarantine, uh, which just pulls that particular driver out of the market. One of the difficulties the U.S. trucking market faces, in particular intermodal, which is the drayage portion, the delivery portion associated with full containers over here. One of the difficulties that, that they faced is importers and warehouses keeping containers longer than they had before. So that dwell time where the chassis and container are out of the, the railroad and sitting at that warehouse waiting to be unloaded. So if it used to take two days or three days for a warehouse to unload that container and return it and make that chassis available to the general market, now in some cases it's nine or 10 days which just means that that truck, that chassis, that container, all those things are out and, and in use and not being returned to the pool for everybody else to have access to. And it's become a real challenge. Trucking rates in the United States have increased substantially over the past six, eight months. Uh, and this is a big reason why. Just turning back to Adam, if I may. One of the other findings in that Project 44 study was that despite the increased cost of shipping and sky-high freight rate, 
it's actually making sense for some shippers to leave cargo on vessels at those congested US ports rather than storing it in warehouses on land. Why, why is that? Yeah, in, in some ways that is that is true. You know, I think the favorable uh, financing costs have made it easier for large shippers to keep some freight on vessels. At the same time, I think the larger issue is the fact that so many vessels are stuck offshore and there's really no choice for these companies but to leave cargo on those vessels. You know, we saw, for example, in 2021, there was over what we calculated to be $238 billion worth of cargo delayed outside of LA and Long Beach. Last week, Project 44 data saw that there were over 100 vessels still waiting, which would be, again, about $5.8 billion worth of cargo. That's a that's a 160% increase in the average waiting time since even the beginning of uh, this year in places like New York. So essentially, the, some of these shippers, they're just making the best of a bad hand. I think that's right. I mean, there are some aspects of these issues that are favorable for some, but overall, this is a, a large challenge as everyone's reading on the front page news. Project 44 managed to raise uh, another $420 million, taking company valuation to $2.2 billion early in January. How will you be uh, putting all that cash to best use? We're, we're proud of that number. Of course, it's a lot of capital, but I think more importantly, it represents the value we're delivering to customers like Amazon, FedEx, Unilever, Nestle, Home Depot, et cetera, and literally a thousand other companies. The, the real plan for this capital is to keep expanding. We're doing that geographically to ensure that products as they're moving everywhere can be uh, tracked and gained visibility into building out our solutions even beyond visibility that are helping these large retailers and manufacturers solve problems and have the workflows around the issues in the supply chain. And as we continue to track over a billion parcels and packages per year for customers all the way to their door, it's about ensuring that customers have better transparency into really what's going on in the supply chain and how to resolve the issues themselves. Thank you, Adam. Jason, if you could just stay with us a moment while we look at what happens in the coming months. So, Peter, those contract negotiations on the Trans-Pacific, they'd normally be resolved May, June, but they've started earlier this year. I think it's tender season all year, basically, because of the the, the, the tight markets and, uh, and the red hot freight rates that we see everywhere. And you're absolutely right. They have started earlier this year. We have already in, uh, indicated to some Senator clients uh, basically where we are expecting to see the Trans-Pacific uh, long-term freight rates uh, coming in uh, when they are finally uh, finalized uh, over the uh, coming uh, months and quarters. But I think also it's relevant to add here, Mike, uh, that there's so much more talk also on top of the rates going on right now. What used to be just a hackle over the final dollar is now so much more also on where do carriers ask for more predictability in terms of the cargo also being shipped from the shippers. Uh, so it's not only shippers uh, demanding higher reliability from the carriers. I guess they also have to realize somewhat that they have a say in this in, in, in the way that, uh, okay, carriers may run a tight network and, and they may be somewhat to blame for low reliability, but I guess also some of the shippers may have impacted uh, that over, well, over at least the, the, the past two years. So going forward, a lot of the talks will also be around what can we put into a contract that will lower the level of the rate, of course, because without doubt, if you're facing a contract uh, rate, which is up some 200 to 300%, you need so much more than just what you could rightly expect. Say a timely service running when you expect it to be and as agreed. Uh, but I think as we are also somewhat in a strange year where we are unwinding a lot of log jams everywhere, we need to focus on other parameters also. And you need also to realize that it is not enough only to focus on what the carrier can do in terms of optimizing the network and this service. Also, what can the shipper do? And of course, subsequently, what can the hinterland connectivity do for you? And basically, in which way should they perhaps also integrate in the offer? And I guess that, well, without uh, disclosing too much of, uh, of what has been going on in the Far East to Europe uh, negotiations, obviously, carriers now offering end-to-end -end solutions to their clients. 
is of course not only a talk of the town, but also something for shippers to uh, to consider when they look at the different proposals on the table. Peter, there is an elephant in the room here. Looming over that Trans-Pacific trade is negotiations between the Pacific Maritime Association, which represents container lines and port interests, and the Longshore Workers Union, which represents some 22,000 dock workers on the West Coast. Then looking at a new stevedoring deal for the US West Coast. Now, conflict over the last agreement in 2014-2015, which I'm sure many people will remember, became so acrimonious that several key ports were actually brought to a near standstill and President Barack Obama was forced to intervene. Now that original deal signed back then expires this July the 1st and the ILWU has already turned down a one-year extension, not unsurprisingly considering the current negotiating parameters and the, the amount of pressure on those ports. Now we're already hearing reports of some shippers diverting cargo to East Coast ports for fear of a repeat of the disruption last time negotiations were underway. How big a risk is this for those trans-Pacific contracts and for shippers hoping for more reliability on the West Coast this year? Jason, what's your take on this? It's a big problem, especially with the delays on the West Coast. Three plus weeks now for the boat to dock. It is entirely feasible and pretty easy, actually, to lay out a case where a container gets loaded on a boat May 7 and isn't out of the terminal by July 1. And so advising clients to book 30 days in advance, now we're back into early April. We'll have just come off of a march that's trying to clear out all the Chinese New Year backlog. Because let's face it, all the cargo that wants to get out of China before Chinese New Year is not getting out of China before Chinese New Year. So I think March is pretty much spoken for. And into April, people are having to make decisions about what am I gonna do with my cargo in May? Now I'm contending with a July 1 lockout. Importers in the US right now have zero appetite for risk, none. They don't want any more anything to deal with. I actually think that as we get into the middle of April, maybe April 15 to May 15, Mike, I think we see costing for the West Coast start to decline. I think we see it start to retract from these absolutely insane highs because I think people are going to start a prophylaxis, anything we can do to get away from that potentiality. And I think that decrease in volume pushes costing down. On the other side of that, I think costing for Gulf and East Coast shipments starts to go bonkers. Jason Haith, uh, thank you very much for joining us, the Lodestar podcast. Really appreciate your time. Thanks, Mike. And Mr. Sand, what's your take on those, uh, the risk that these negotiations pose? It's a massive and very real risk. Well, I don't think we need to put much more perspective on this than you already did, Mike. But I think we, we basically need to realize also that it is already ongoing. Some of the early dance moves on the floors are, are basically being carried out right now. I could argue that the port workers are, are, are basically already at the negotiation table without talking to the employers. They are processing at a lower rate than you perhaps could otherwise expect. If we look at the, the data for volumes coming in to the U.S. Uh, West Coast ports, it's coming down. Uh, so, so you would uh, actually expect if all other things being equal, the line of ships waiting to, uh, to, to berth uh, would come down also. But we have seen the opposite, right? And, and uh, to me, that sounds as if... They are already, uh, say, going slow to some extent. And I think also we have seen some shippers already now realizing that, okay, we are super tired of making another contingency plan. We might as well just expect this to be a year where we should more or less avoid the U.S. West Coast, at least if it's possible. So to the extent that you can divert cargo, and I'm not talking about just bringing it a little bit down to Mexico or, or, or Canada, of course, but if you can divert it all the way into U.S. Gulf to the extent that we have capacity there, and of course, uh, with, uh, with massive growth on the U.S. East Coast already, they are also eager to take some of the, some of the boxes that may be diverted or circumvented at, the, at this year. But it is certainly one of the things that we're looking very much uh, into, the, the effect from these negotiations. But because they will be super tough and there will be an impact on efficiency, without doubt. We'll be keeping an eye on those 
port productivity levels in the coming weeks and months, because I think they might be quite critical. One of the big factors in those productivity levels, of course, which has been a problem for decades already, is the US has a lot of obsolete infrastructure, which does not help at all. Now, there is a lot of hope that President Biden will address this, as you mentioned earlier. But for many shippers hearing about those looming strikes, they might be looking at the East Coast, as Jason and yourself suggest, but some of them will end up relying possibly on air cargo, where that's feasible for certain cargoes, that higher value cargoes. Now, when I interviewed Flexport Neil Jones Shah, he told me that US infrastructure shortcomings weren't confined to ports. The, the infrastructure question that you ask is a very appropriate one because we saw last year the impact of not having the infrastructure to handle the volume, right? We saw massive slowdowns at the airport. We saw every airline terminal congested beyond the point of people being able to even maneuver inside of them. And you know, these terminals, if you get a blockage, they, they basically cease to function because they're, they're throughput stations. They're not warehouses. And that's the situation we face in almost every gateway. And, and not, it's not only in the U.S. I mean, we face that situation in the early days in, in many ports in Asia. Many European airports are facing very similar sort of congestion issues. But it does highlight the lack of infrastructure. It highlights the fact that we haven't invested nearly enough in our cargo handling capabilities on a global scale. And, and I believe this needs to be a, a discussion that's front and center for 22 and beyond, because these investments don't get approved overnight and they don't materialize overnight. These are several year sort of uh, strategic plans that need to be put into place. And right now, is the situation better? Of course it is, it's better. It's better because demand is less than it was three months ago, right? We've had the traditional slowdown over the holiday period. But for me, you don't solve the problem by choking off the demand. That seems like a, a, a sort of backwards way of getting to a, a, a functioning system. We need to be able to grow air cargo. We need to be able to move more and more air freight and do it effectively and not have these five, six, seven day delays at destination. So it's better right now. I think it's gonna get just as bad as it was as volume picks up and we haven't done anything yet structurally really to solve the problem. And so a lot of work to do. I'm hoping the infrastructure bill in the U.S. will address some of this and some money will be directed towards it, but we still have a ways to go. Yeah, I like your counterintuitive point there, which made me think of, of shipping lines where I've heard a few executives say, well, if you want to get things a bit more quickly and more reliably, you probably need to spend less money on the products that we ship, which it seems the route runway round to me, but just turning back to that customer demand there, and you, you mentioned the infrastructure limitations that you're, you face around the world. You guys did a mid-January customer poll into expected air freight demand. What are shippers thinking for 2022? Yeah, we just did this air freight update and webinar um, this past week, and we asked our customers. As you sit here in the, in the early part of January, what are your expectations for air freight for 22? Were you going to ship more the same as or less than 2021? And uh, it was very decisive. 50% of respondents said they were going to be shipping more air freight in 22 than 21. And we know 21 was a good year for air freight. Uh, you know, there was a lot of growth, particularly in the Trans-Pacific eastbound, really globally. And 39% said the same as you know, last year with only 11% saying less than. So to me, it was a pretty definitive response. Obviously it's a non-scientific sample set, but it, it's a pretty definitive response that air freight's going to be a very important component for shippers in 22. And my big sort of, you know, I guess comment to leave a lot of shippers with right now is that if you are expecting to use air freight in 22, then for God's sake, plan for it. Plan for it. Don't be a victim or don't get completely whipsawed by the spot market, right? Because you're, you're going to end up paying more. You're going to end up having longer transit times and probably end up being more frustrated. But if you know you're going to use air freight and you know, just bake it into your economics right now, start to move some skews towards air freight right now. And the more planful you are, the lower the cost is going to be, the shorter the transit time. And I think the more satisfied you're going to be overall with how your supply chain performs. And 
it's not easy for, for shippers to get comfortable with that because even though they know they're going to use it, they want to try and put it off for, for as long as possible. But I think that ends up just costing you a lot more money at the end of the day. So if you want to avoid those premium rates on any lane, pretty much you, if the, the message is plan early or, or plan to expend a lot, an awful lot more money. Exactly. Plan early, get allocations, you know, sign block space agreements, do what you need to do in order to get reliability and financial stability. And then, you know, you'll at least have visibility into what your cost structure is going to be. That would be my advice as we head into 22, particularly knowing that it's going to be another strong year for air freight. Neil mentioned there, Peter, that many of those infrastructure limitations in the U.S. are also apparent in Europe. How might this weigh on the Asia-Europe container trade this year, particularly around the ports? I think what we have seen in Europe, predominantly in the northern part of Europe, have also been akin to what we have seen in the U.S., but still to a different extent, where we have seen, say, weeks of delays in, in U.S., West Coast in particular. We have seen, say, seven to 10 days uh, around the UK ports, for instance. We've just seen a little bit of the, the most recent congestion numbers coming in for, for Felixstone going up again. I mean, they are also battling not only the port infrastructure, but certainly also the trucker situation with the UK leaving EU and, uh, and a lot of workers also leaving the UK behind. So uh, there's many things coming into this perfect storm picture. Uh, but I think it's fair to say also that the Port of Hamburg uh, have also uh, I mean, been struggling to, to keep up uh, making uh, cargoes uh, divert uh, to, to Bremerhaven, for instance, uh, making better use of, a, of an underutilized port. So, so I think it's also fair to say that some of the ports that, that have also grown rapidly in, in Europe, for instance, Antwerp over the past couple of years, they have really risen to, to reach for the skies in, in terms of capacity and port throughput. They are also now just facing uh, some troubles processing the cargoes coming in. And, and part of that is still, and I think we need to address this also, of course, that a part of this is due still also to the ultra-large container ship that the ports were simply initially not built to cater for, and they have only been around for a decade or so. But obviously, a lot of the infrastructure connecting the European ports as well we're not set up for, for, for port calls where you exchange some five, 8,000 boxes per ship. Uh, they were set up for many smaller port calls, exchanging a couple of thousand boxes, making much better use of a, of a consistent flow rather than this stop and go where you have the ultra-large container ships calling. So there's plenty of obstacles to look at also uh, going into to the, the Far East to Europe trade in North Europe, but, but certainly also in the Mediterranean part of it. For the non-European uh, listeners, we've still got quite stringent lockdowns in large chunks of Europe, but consumer demand stays pretty high. So as you mentioned, with all those constraints on logistics networks, what does this mean for how people are buying freight? What has changed predominantly is the offering by some carriers where you as a shipper are now considering, should I have strings attached to my ocean freight? Yes or no. Uh, it, of course, required so much more insights from you as a shipper uh, in terms of uh, capability of comparing what used to be, okay, port-to-port -port offerings here. So, of course, you could compare this to some extent to the service offering by, by some freight forwarders, but still, I mean, that wasn't the case. So we're in somewhat of a, say, a, a, a new era of carriers trying to uh, get into to the market where they were not before. Uh, and of course, this comes out of the whole idea of vertical integration of uh, the uh, supply chains, where a lot of those profits made last year in the liner industry, and also this year for sure, will be put to work. We have seen over the past couple of months, quite hefty prices for some of those uh, logistics companies that some carriers have offered. And of course, when they pay that kind of money for, for the, uh, the vertical integration, uh, they cannot just lower freight rates instantly. They they need to make sure that even though their offer on the ocean is so much lower than uh, than what you would otherwise expect from, uh, say, a traditional carrier, they need to make up for that in the, in the hinterland connectivity. And I think that is one of the things that have really, really changed. But getting back to, to where you started also, Mike, I think the pendulum is obviously also swinging back 
we will see more cargo moved on contracts again this year, obviously because also uh, shippers and carriers have been capable of preparing themselves in a much better way than they were a year ago when they were looking into 2021 and not necessarily expecting this drama that we saw with a fairly steady market in the uh, first half of 2021 and then wrecking havoc in in the second half where everything just went sky high and where the problems accelerated everywhere, including Far East to Europe. And at what sort of price levels are these contracts being fixed at versus, say, spot rates right now or perhaps versus contract prices in 2020 and 2019? solid levels to to put it mildly uh, in our platform we see right now contracts being done at around nine and a half thousand dollars per box and that compares of course to uh let me just give you some hindsight in terms of the pre-pandemic levels uh, the long-term freight rates on a far east to europe trade lane in 2019 was somewhere between 1300 and 1500 of course somewhat lower than the spot that's how the market goes 2020, we had a lift to uh, to the long-term freight rates also, moving somewhere around 1,500 to, uh, to 1,800. And then around came 2021, starting quite steeply increasing to 3,200 and then ending the year at around 9,000. And that's basically where we're seeing it also. And I guess uh, you may have seen also the news that we put out some uh, month ago giving insights into what uh, shippers should expect in terms of these contracts. Because obviously, if you sit all by yourself and have no capability of comparing or benchmarking uh, the the contract offering that you have in front of you, you would naturally uh, hesitate to sign an agreement that would bring your costs, your your fixed costs for for logistics on on long contracts uh, volumes here, that up by two or three times. But then again, if you had the insights knowing that okay, this is actually a super tight market. And if you want to add more resilience into your own supply chains, you actually have no other choice because as we just discussed before, there are no real alternatives to ocean shipping when you move a lot of boxes. Uh, you cannot just all of a sudden bring uh, bring it onto a truck or the rail or, or air. So, uh, so right now, I think we are constantly following that market. And I think actually you can, uh, you can go on to a, to the Sanella block shortly and, and and check out an update on especially these long-term contract rates for Far East Europe because that's basically very much in season right now for those volumes. Peter San, thank you very much for joining me on the Lodestar podcast. It was such a pleasure being with you today, Mike. Take care. I'd like to thank TAC Index, the Lodestar's air freight data provider, and Zenita, our sea freight data supplier. Big thanks to my editing team, Karen Ball and Tom Matthews. A shout out to OEC's Jason Haith for his marvellous baritone introduction to this podcast. And most of all, gratitude to you all for listening. We'll be back soon.